Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm very well. I've been away. Have you? Have you been gadding about in a literary fashion, as is your wont? I have. I went to the Granite City. I went to Aberdeen. Very good. For a couple of days to, in fact, the Granite Noir Literary Festival, which, as you can probably guess from the noir aspect focuses on crime and a little bit of horror sounds like a rock climbing convention but it's not it wasn't although there are some hills mm-hmm. who did you talk to it's beautiful city i talked to lisa jewell i talked to jean kwok i talked to emma christie i ate haggis crisps oh excellent how were they they were actually quite nice yeah i was a bit wary but they were quite nice yeah, they were kind of going for the theme then. Yes, they were in a rather nice goodie bag and they did. I had a great time, wonderful time, and I'm back now. And it's always lovely when you sit, I mean, the sitting on coaches and, and shuttles and planes, etc., is not that nice, but no. you do get a lot of reading time. And mm-hmm. I quite like a little book sometimes to, to read that you feel you're going to achieve during the course of a journey. And I had never read Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. Mm-hmm. Me neither. Which I read in an edition with a wonderful introduction by Irenison Okogier. And it's such a good novel. Do you do you know it at all? I don't. I've never see. I've never heard of it. It's a lady who's married to Caliban. No. No. You would okay. think that. <laughs> In my simple-minded way, that's what I think. We could sit here and, and play, you know, 20 questions and 100 guesses and a million guesses. And I don't think you would guess that it's about a housewife in America who thinks that she's hearing the radio talk to her in particular. Oh, we've all thought that, haven't we, We've Alex? all thought that. But she thinks <laughs> she's hearing messages. And then she hears the story of the violent, brutal slaying of a sort of sea monster at a local facility. 
and that everybody must stay in their houses because the sea monster is on the loose. It can survive on land, you will intuit. Oh, they didn't slay the sea monster. It slayed someone else. It slayed the people who'd been looking after oh, it. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's a violent brute and it's on it's on the run. But it arrives in Mrs. Caliban, as it were, in her kitchen. Oh, wow. And she gives it succor and shelter. And it's just wonderful. Gosh, so you weren't I, expecting that, were you? I was not. No, I absolutely wasn't. I wasn't. That sounds really... It reminds me, and this may be completely wrong, and also I haven't seen it, so, you know, feel free to ignore all of this. Is it anything a bit like The Shape of Water? Exactly. That's immediately what came into my mind. But it's going right up there with my short novels that are based on quite fantastical things in the manner of Helen Devitt's The English Understand Wall, which oh, I talk about at which, any possible opportunity. Which we love. Which yep. we love. Uh, so I'm putting that. It's absolutely wonderful. I, I think whole, I might read it. wholeheartedly recommend it okay. uh, to our listeners and indeed to you, Lucy. Have you been reading anything good? Well, I have been reading for work. I've been reading Diane Oliver, of whom more later. Yes, of whom very shortly. But you don't want to ask me what I think because we've got someone much better, much better qualified than me to talk about her. Well, shall we get straight into that? Let's. So I shall tell the listeners that this week, Damon Galgut joins us to explore the world of short story writer Diane Oliver and Rosemary War on Yael Farber's bold new production of King Lear. But first, in this week's TLS, the novelist and Booker Prize winner Damon Galgut has reviewed a book of 14 short stories, eight of which have never been published before, by a writer who might well be unknown to you. The writer is Diane Oliver. The book is called Neighbours, and we're delighted that Damon can join us now to explain how she came to be overlooked and why he hopes this book will correct that. Damon, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. Hello. Hi, I'm very pleased to be here and chatting to you. Well, we should start by saying, as you do in your piece, that this is a horribly sad story, isn't it? Because Diana Oliver died when she was extremely young, but she was already beginning to attract attention. What happened? Yeah, I mean, the, the facts about her life are not that well known, but... She was 22 years old and almost 23, I think she was a couple of weeks off that, when she died in a motorcycle accident. Um, at that time, she'd grown up in the American South in um, Charlottesville, North Carolina. But at the time of her death, she was at the Iowa Writers Workshop and clearly um, at the start of a, what would almost certainly have been an astonishing career. You know, she's a contemporary of literary giants like Tony Morrison, and I think absolutely would have been able to, you know, stand comparison with people like that. But um, as it is, these are the only stories of hers that we now have, and it's it's after a very long break. There had been four, you say, that were published in literary magazines, not in you know, collected in book form. But now these additional stories are are arriving with us. And and am I right to say, or is it is it my ignorance? that she's really not particularly well-known? Well, no. Um, four stories were published in literary magazines in her lifetime, and another two were published posthumously, also in literary magazines. But, you know, it seems to be the way with literary magazines that they're, they're kind of noticed. Pieces are sometimes 
pause for excitement, but in a very tiny little fishbowl most of the time. So mm. um, I think these stories were noticed in that time, but have lain dormant, as it were, for a very long time. And they were kind of discovered, so to speak, by a literary agent in London called Elise Dillsworth, who either read a story or read about a story in some or other American literary magazine, uh, which seemed to be a big feature of this uh, conversation, and um, followed up by trying to track down Diane's family and where she was, and did, after a sleuthing operation, find her sister. And there were a bunch of other stories which she asked to see, and uh, the result is this really quite um, astonishing collection. Well, that really is a kind of momentous story of finding work, isn't it? I mean, well played to have that kind of tenacity. And you you make the point that really it, it was absolutely worth it. Just tell us about this collection. I mean, you, you say she died in 1966 when, of course, the civil rights movement was at its height. Oliver herself had been educated in segregated schools in North Carolina before she went to the Iowa writer's workshop and I was very interested by that the point that you make that the political situation is both crucial to her work and also represented by its absence in other words what's not expressed and I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about that about how she worked yeah I mean it's obviously true that she she came to maturity really at, at the time that the civil rights movement in America was at its height I think and that that was very much part of her consciousness. But I do make the point in the review that that might suggest a sort of political earnestness, which is very far from how she worked. Um, there are only two stories that I can think of off the top of my head that specifically deal with events related to, you know, that civil rights movement. But even those two stories come at the issue obliquely. So in the title story, Neighbours, we hear about this family where the youngest child, Tommy Mitchell, is about to become the first uh, child at an integrated grade school in America the very next morning. Now, somebody less subtle might have tried to tackle that issue head on as a political issue, looking at Tommy's arrival at the school, which, of course, you know, is powerful material in itself. But what Oliver does is to displace her view onto the family the night before and the events in the in the house leading up to the moment where Tommy wakes up in the morning. So we never get to the, the main event. But that approach is very, very affecting. It throws a light onto the human aspect of that situation, which is all too often not considered if you're looking at the politics of it. Likewise, with the other civil rights related story, um, a group of, of young people go out to perform a, um, a protest at a tea room, and a supposedly all whites tea room in the Jim Crow era of America. And um, there again, the, the issues could have been central to the way you told that story. But what she did was once more, the, the you see the story through the eyes of a, um, a young girl. And she, um, is very, very concerned about the effect that her participation in the protest will have on her family. So again, there's that familial illumination that happens and that throws, if you like, the political events, which are of course very important, 
into a sort of relative position where you know that these are human beings and their lives are just like yours or mine. And she's very, very good at noticing those little human details that, that tell you that, that these are people mm. struggling middle of history. So yeah, sorry, that's a very long answer, but it seems quite central <laughs> to what she's doing. No, it's a wonderful answer. I was very struck by that, by that idea, because there are a few people who do things for the first time, not necessarily as a protest, but just because that's how it works out. And there is this absolutely constant focus, as you say, on them as as human beings. They're not thinking noble thoughts. There is a little bit of talk about the cause uh, every now and again, but they're not thinking I would be the first to blaze my way. They're thinking about what to have for dinner or what are they going to tell their mum when they get home or, you know, have they ruined their hat or whatever. It's very much the feeling of real, actual people doing having to go through these sometimes horrific events. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I think she notices, as I say, those little details where somebody, you know, performs a small action, maybe an unconscious one that has nothing to do with the other events going on, but that's very revealing about them. Yeah, and it's never sensationalized. That's the other thing. Some of the material you could say is fairly sensational. I mean, there are a few murders in these stories, but her her narrative approach is, is never sensational. She has a very sober steady voice very observational and and very serious in its observation it's it's very it's a very noticeable aspect of her style well you also say that that in some ways there are moments when as a reader you might sort of mistake or miss the power of what's going on because of that steadiness because you know often stories have characters behaving with great resilience and there's a sort of resilience to the style as well yeah, I strongly felt that. You know, the the one common aspect to most of the characters in these stories um, is their stoicism. There's a kind of dogged determination to keep going, um, often against really horrible odds. Poverty is very often the, the ethos in which these characters are moving. Something about her narrative style is very much in tune with the stoicism of those characters. So, you know, if you wanted to be critical, you, you could say there's a, there's a kind of evenness to her narrative rhythm in most of the stories. Um, but it's very, it's very much necessary for that sharp, cool, observational eye. But the, the kind of evenness of the stories means that they're best taken in one at a time. That was my experience. If you were looking for a, you know, cheap thrills, the kind of um, stylistic virtuoso showing off effects, uh, you've come to the wrong place. She's not that writer. The stories have a very steady quality to them, and you're correct. It's very easy to overlook the fact that there's an enormous amount of skill and good judgment that's going into their construction. It's very restrained. It seemed very, you know, very pared back, which, uh, which is obviously very difficult. And that seemed amazing to me in somebody who was 21 or 22 when she wrote all that. Yeah, I I mean, she's she's clearly a prodigy, but what's astonishing about her consistently is how much natural skill she seems to possess as a writer, knowing how to structure a story, how to pitch a voice and so on. But okay, there are other younger writers who have these skills, um, impressive though they are. But what repeatedly struck me in the reading of the stories was how much she knew about life at that particular age. You know, a certain amount of it uh, related to young characters because they're often young girls that are the central characters in the stories. You would understand and she speaks from a certain amount of experience in that regard, but she has an astute understanding of 
marriages and you know old relationships that have gone wrong even of the kind of uh, subtle or not so subtle racism of certain white characters how does she know all this at such a young age and then you know as i've said uh, managed to convey it in with with such artfulness so yeah she she was precocious for sure um, and precociously brilliant I was very intrigued by your description of a story, it was a great title, uh, called Mint Juleps Not Served Here, which you identify as a gothic story and make the comparison with, with Flannery O'Connor, which does sound actually slightly different from the other stories. Yeah, I mean, having said that um, there's a similarity of approach, one has to pick out the fact that a lot of the stories differ from that approach. That's one for sure. It, I, I found it a gothic story and Flannery O'Connor came to mind while I was reading it. So it's very clear, an, an unspoken element, which it often is with Diane Oliver, um, it's very clear that race is what propels um, the behavior, the quite extreme behavior of that story. Uh, it's not just there for grotesque effect. It's, a, it's about a family who have sort of cut themselves off and, and live in the forest, isn't it? Well, they're living in a forest preserve, which is fairly understandable, but they resort to, you know, what you could only really call serial murder to keep their, yeah. their existence there a secret. So, you know, um, some kind of caseworker, social worker comes to visit and she's duly dispatched and buried. And you find out that she's, you know, the fourth of several that have been dispensed with in this way, but it's very routine and matter of fact and just something the family has to do to keep going. So, you know, it's definitely, to my mind, a gothic story, but one that it has a very strong uh, racial source or underpinning to it. And race is very often an unspoken element in these stories. There's, a, there's another one called The Closet on the Top Floor, where a young, a young woman, Winifred, um, goes to study at a college and she, again, is the only black student and feels herself very much to be the only black student. And yet that's conveyed to you without ever being explicit. What's important to, to Diane Oliver is her state of mind and the breakdown that she undergoes. So um, you kind of see the story through her eyes. And again, it's very, very skillfully done. You're, you're seeing the world through the eyes of somebody who is not really in touch with it anymore. And you are left in a little doubt as to whether you know, you're perceiving it altogether accurately. It's just, it's very, very artfully done. Hmm. It leads us on, I guess, to thinking, of course, about how Diane Oliver might have developed. And, and you think there are signs perhaps in this collection that she was thinking about more experimental ways of writing. Of course, we can never know how she would have developed and whether it would have been in lots of different directions. But, but what was your sort of gut response, as it were? Well, there's at least one story in the collection called Frozen Voices that I think is very uh, daring in a narrative sense. Um, her approach there is absolutely different to the approach in any of the other stories. It's hard to describe. You kind of need to read it, but it's not, it's not a way of uh, telling a story that I've ever really come across before. It's extremely unusual, innovative, quite radical. Probably wouldn't have worked if it was novel length, but it, uh, for a short story, it really, uh, I, I thought, very, very interesting. And that said to me um, two things. Firstly, that she, she was interested in trying to throw her voice into new forms. But secondly, also that she had the ability to do it. 
you know, that's always the question. So yeah, amongst her many other um, attributes at that very young age, Diane Oliver, I think was showing signs of being able to develop in all kinds of interesting directions. And an unspoken question for me was how she might have measured up to the state of racial relations in America right now, which are very obvious, I think, to any outside observer, very obviously at the center of the, of the whole American story and have, you know, have always been. Um, and that's where her attention was, Diane Oliver's attention was back in the 60s. But what would she have made of the current state of things, George Floyd and um, Black Lives Matter? I can't help thinking that her style would have made developmental leaps in response to the current situation. But, you know, as you point out, it's impossible to know how someone might develop. I think um, all signs are that uh, Diane Oliver's talent would have um, risen to the the challenges of the present moment in, in ways that might have been stylistically very innovative and surprising. Well, it's obviously a wonderful thing that this book was was published, although a dreadful thing that, that we didn't find out and that we won't know. I was just interested to know about your response to it, because I was thinking, of course, about your own work and how in your last novel, particularly The Promise, you told the story of the way that society, South Africa, was developing exactly in that way, through lots of different perspectives and through interiority. And it, it struck me that, that that was evidently something that you felt was an important way to tell the big stories of historical developments, was a sort of slant-wise way. Yeah, I guess if you're writing with one eye on history, you also need to pay attention to how you go about that. Nothing drier than a straight historical account. And, and fiction is trying to do something else. I think it's it's trying to take you into that moment, the texture of it, how it feels, and so on. I mean, without doubt, I think um, Diane Oliver does that for that period. But what she's doing, very different to me, I, I'm my perspective in my book was entirely through white eyes, or almost entirely. Her perspective, of course, is very much from the center of the black experience at that time. And um, as I say, she's not approaching it with a political project in mind. Her project is much more humanist. Her vision is very tender, intimate, very concerned with people and how they behave. I was impertinently just going to ask if we could ask about what you're working on at the moment, Damon, or do you want us not to ask that and to, to talk about Diane Oliver? <laughs> um, as it happens, I'm working on a collection of short stories. Aha. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse, it's been it's been on my uh, desk for a while and I, um, I'm very sort of steeped in them. Um, I love short stories. I, I always have. I don't understand the kind of traditional resistance of publishers and supposedly some readers to short stories. So, of course, I'm particularly receptive to the work of somebody like uh, Diane Oliver. But, um, yeah, anyway, that's about the only overlap between uh, the, my collection <laughs> and hers. I can say I'm, I'm, I'm writing about people who are traveling and far from home. That's my sort of loose and general theme, a far less uh, serious one than hers, I think. Well, very, very strange, you know, sort of coincidence of timing. I've just been reading some short stories uh, myself, which by an Irish writer called Mary Costello, 
And one of them is about a South African writer, J.M. Kutzia, and in particular, a character who becomes focused, who is also called Costello, becomes focused on Elizabeth Costello and the idea of these stories talking to one another across cultures and countries and times and also about the business of writing, I find completely fascinating. No, that's that's really interesting. I'll try and track that down. It's, I've, it's the first time I've heard of that. Really, story. really interesting. And, and again, that sort of cerebral kind of feeling about how to deal with great political events and that engagement with Kurt Sears particular focus on animal rights um, and I know that we talked once Damon um, you were explaining to me about different consciousnesses in fictional writing how sometimes even if you shifted the focus onto something like an animal's consciousness you could completely revivify a piece of, of storytelling and it all came into my mind yeah. <laughs> well I mean it was what I was trying to do with uh, with the last book with the promise mm. for sure but it was something of a, what would you call it, an unusual excursion for me, not something I'd tried before. Uh, certainly opened up some possibilities for things I might like to explore later, but um, first the short stories to deal with. Right. We are going to, in which case, allow you to go back to your short stories, <laughs> not, not bother you with more questions about them, other than to say, I shall be delighted when they arrive on my desk. But we are so thrilled to have you. It was great of you to, to make time to talk to us and thank you so much for talking so wholeheartedly about Diane Oliver. It really it was a pleasure for me to to talk about this particular collection and I really hope that its long delayed publication will uh, turn her into the star she deserved to be back then. Thank you. to come on the show. Rosemary War reports back from a thrilling new production of King Lear. And to read all the pieces we talk about and much more, remember to subscribe to the TLS. Just head on over to our website at the-tls.co.uk. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, there's a new production of King Lear on at the Almeida Theatre at the moment by the acclaimed director Yael Farber. She's also tackled two of the other big Shakespearean tragedies, Hamlet and Macbeth, recently. The pairing of Farber, an artist whose theatre is so radical, embodied and rooted in another culture, with William Shakespeare, grandfather of all that is canonical and British, might seem incongruous, says Rosemary Waugh in a piece she's written for us this week. Very happily, she is here with us to talk us through whether it is or not. Rosemary, many thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's lovely to be with you. Thank you. So for those of our listeners who don't know or haven't had a chance to see any of Yael Farber's work, could you give us a bit of her uh, her background, especially her theatrical experiences? Yeah, so she's a South African director, although she has spent quite a bit of adult life living outside of South Africa in Canada, um, although she's recently moved back to Cape Town. But her theatre practice started in Johannesburg. She started out after, when she first started directing, after doing um, acting herself, she started with um, a group of plays that she wrote, which were all testimonial theatre by which they meant um, they were a piece of theatre that were entirely based on the real experiences of people who had um, suffered under the apartheid regime. Um, But they were made into pieces of theatre that kind of transcended being, I don't know, for example, what you'd think of as maybe like documentary theatre or something. It was kind of pieces of theatre that told these stories, but also used a lot of kind of theatrical elements so that, you know, when you're watching them, it wasn't just like somebody standing up and saying verbatim what it like kind of happened to them. It was sort of more kind of woven into something where there was also these elements of performance. Do you think that that was informed? There's there's some of her early experiences of seeing theatre. You mentioned a theatre, is it called Market Theatre, that was very influential um, on her and you think still is, do you think? Yeah, very much so. So... Her first experiences of watching theatre were at the Market Theatre in Johannesburg, and that was quite significant because it was a very unique venue. I think it was because of a loophole in the apartheid laws, because it essentially had this kind of history of being like on ground that was a market. It somehow got away with being able to um, like kind of slip through the kind of segregation laws so that it could both create um pieces of theater that were performed by artists of all color but also had um like multiracial audiences but it was also that the the type of theater that was on there was very like it was obviously incredibly politically engaged both by you know like how it was made and what it was about but um it was also very very like viscerally kind of enacted and performed it would involve say like people coming off the stage and interacting very directly with the audiences. Sort of very uncompromising, kind of very full-on theatre. I think she took from that both the 
both the kind of political like uh, political sort of side of it, but also this very kind of um, very strongly physical uh, mode of theatre. Sorry, sorry, I was just going to say, and 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 so that there's the testimonial theatre, which which sounds as though that you know it has some um, some sort of similarity with that maybe. But then the stuff that she did after that, as you say in your piece, she tends to be less well known for that testimonial theatre and actually more allied with doing sort of big canonical works, isn't she? But but doing them very much with her own stamp. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that the majority of, say, like British audiences in particular or British critics kind of know her for, in particular, there was this... Um, production of The Crucible that was on at the Old Vic that had um, Richard Armitage in the kind of main role. And it, yeah, it had this kind of, um, it was just this very sort of intense, moody, almost like spiritual, quite like slow version of this. Um, It was kind of, it was funny because it was a sort of theatre that in a lot of ways, like probably should be called something like immersive theatre. But obviously isn't because what we actually know of immersive theatre in terms of that term would be something where, you know, you go in and you take part. It was more just that this is a kind of type of theatre where it's like you went in, you sat down and watched it, but you sort of felt so completely within the production. Is there a word for that, Lucy? That isn't, is there something <laughs> between immersive and just just watching it, I wonder? Because I, I know what you mean. It's a I know of... what you mean as well. I mean, really, yeah. in a way, I suppose all theatre sh- should be like that. But I do know what you mean. You feel as though you're part of it, but it's not one of the ones where they... There is a fourth wall being broken somehow, it's there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we do need to, we need to develop a word for this kind of... We'll have a think. <laughs> think rapidly over the next five minutes, see if we can... <laughs> yeah, coin, coin a term. Our <laughs> listeners yes, will let us know, they, they always do. Us. Yeah, exactly. So she's taken on these well-known classics, and as you say, she's known for some of these big productions. So to answer your your point and that, that I made earlier, so is it incongruous that she's taking on the most canonical works by the most canonical playwright? I mean, I think absolutely not in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, it very much sits within her, um, yeah, her sort of CV of what she's done. I mean, I think like, even in the sense of just, you know, you might think that you might just expect that somebody would get to a certain point in their career before they like tackled something like King Lear. I think it's definitely that she's sort of just got to that point very much so. Um, But also, yeah, like her background in terms of just taking on like the big plays and doing them in a certain way. I suppose there's like that slight strangeness of like with anybody when you've got, um, maybe it's more in terms of the sort of, I guess, again, like maybe just like the sort of politics of it, it's like the kind of strangeness of that she's very well known, for instance, for doing very kind of feminist theatre. And so maybe that's more of a strange thing if you think like, well, if you're like a very kind of, you might look at her work and sort of think, why would she be attracted to doing Shakespeare rather than say like, I don't know, like a contemporary female playwright or something? Mm-hmm. Well, there are strong female characters in King Lear. <laughs> We yeah, very much so. I mean, and but yeah, I don't I don't think it probably is actually a strange pairing, even though it sort of looks like it should be somehow. Yes, because you, you said that her style is very kind of earthy and rooted. It's not and I don't mean this I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but it sounds as though it's not particularly sort of cerebral. Not that it's not intelligent and there's a lot of intelligence behind it, but it's it's of the body, certainly as well as of the mind. Is that right? 
very much so and I think like it's kind of yeah like it's um not cerebral in like the best possible way in Mm. this kind of way as in like it's um it's more to do with almost like the intelligence of the body of kind of how you would like feel these emotions within your muscles or um within your movements or it kind of reminds me of there was this thing I, I read once um by the director Katie Mitchell and she talked about how in some of her work she built on this idea that um basically that your body knows things before your mind does and there was actually this kind of um people have done sort of like actual kind of studies into this of that the the sort of ways in which like your body moves almost like a kind of microsecond before your mind says move mm. and so it's kind of that thing of yeah it's almost like it's it's so within the whole of you even if you don't realize it is mm-hmm. how does she use that in the story of Lear that we're so familiar with I think within the kind of movement of all of the actors individually for each bit. Um, I think, so one of the things that she's always done incredibly well is to kind of enable actors to really perform um, like sexual tension and erotic kind of friction and sort of attraction really, really well. Um, And that doesn't come up that much in Lear at all, although she does have some scenes where she sort of, yeah, like quite well stages um, kind of almost sex scenes in it. But it's in this, what I found interesting, which she she kind of um, stages some of almost like the opposite of that. So you get a real sense with kind of people's body language of often sort of like um, hatred or distrust or disliking of each other. So there was like this moment where uh, Regan is... Um, greeted by her husband and he goes to kiss her on the cheek and she just sort of dodges the kiss and it's this kind of like little scene that's sort of just it's like playing out literally in the background to what's actually happening on stage but there's just this kind of like micro drama moment where you see and you just think like oh she doesn't like him very much does she <laughs> yeah, yeah what's going on I don't think anybody likes anybody very much in Leah <laughs> Delia is all right I suppose so. it is a very I mean obviously as soon as you think about it there's so much that is physical about it there is so mm-hmm. much that happens to people's bodies violence and drama and obviously you make a great mention of of the tempest scene in it too which is immensely physical yeah, definitely. And I think within that one, um, there's this really beautiful use of almost like slow motion movement. Um, one of the things that's, um, so one of the, the kind of features of Barbara's career is that she often works with the same um, other creatives quite a lot. Um, so in particular, um, there's a movement director, Imogen um, Knight, who um she worked with on Leah, but she's also worked with on quite a lot of other productions as well. Um, and I think that quite a lot of the visual language that's used in her work is a kind of sort of part of this long-term collaboration that they've managed to develop um, of using the actors' bodies in these, that you kind of have these moments where it's much closer to kind of choreography. It's much sort of more almost like dance-based in a way. Mm. All the time you were talking about it, I was thinking, you know, about this this kind of very physical theatre. It was sounding like like dance. 
it's interesting because I remember when I was interviewing um, Yale that she said um, she used to be a dancer when she was growing up. She did actually loads of flamenco, like her loads of Spanish dancing. Um, and then she briefly became, she thought she was going to become an actor, but she just felt like she couldn't really unlock in her own body what she sort of really valued when watching other actors. And one of the reasons for that was because she felt that the dance training that she'd had in this really specific form had actually almost like locked her into physically mm. kind of holding herself in a certain way. Because mm, it was a particular discipline. So she would she would look like that. Yes, exactly. So it'd yeah. be this thing of having this sort of like weirdly arched back and kind of having this very like, I guess, like this sort of incredibly composed form that mm. was almost like too composed or something. Mm. I'm interested in also in, in how this one resonates with the other two tragedies that I mentioned and that you talk about, because you've, you've got this lovely idea that there's a sort of doubling that you refer to in them. There's a sort of, there's it's very everyday, but it's also dreamlike. It's very particular and local, but it's also got global resonance and it's about memory and the past, but also about premonition in the future are those the right things to pinpoint and are they in all three productions do you think yeah very much so I think that's a really lovely summary that you just gave I think um yeah so when I first went to see Hamlet which is um I saw it in Dublin at the Dublin Theatre Festival and um so that was with um Ruth Neger as Hamlet and it was um whenever I think of that production I always think of it as being just completely black that like everything visually like its color scheme was black that there was just this very kind of like funereal like yeah just deathly kind of elegiac yes yes it was very kind of slow and very 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 sad I think that's something which is almost played out across all three of them I think Macbeth slightly less so I think there's definitely it feels very very much like these three are parts of they kind of go together that there's like there is shared themes across all of them but I feel like um I felt like when I was watching King Leo I sort of felt like there was like a very very tight through line to Hamlet almost too much not too much so but I think like actually weirdly if you'd seen Hamlet and then straight away seen King Leo after it you might have almost been a bit like oh they're sort of very tightly connected in a way but actually having seen them across like several years and with Macbeth in the middle then actually those kind of similarities became really interesting like this kind of really kind of long building up of this relationship. Mm. The Macbeth was the one that was also at the Almeida wasn't it and with Saoirse Ronan and was it James McAvoy was he the? Um, James McArdle. James McArdle wrong yeah. James Mac. Um, <laughs> but you, and you talk about that one how in that one there was a lot of water. There was a sort of more obvious sort of theatrical thing. There was lots of water everywhere, wasn't there? And it kind of splashed everywhere and got onto the audience. It was that was that perhaps more sort of obviously theatrical. Yeah, it was funny because it's so it's something that um critics of her work often pick up on is this idea that she does very kind of um I don't know, like there's there's a lot to her productions. Like, and for some people that's almost too much with Macbeth I remember when I first sat down in in the auditorium and I looked at and I was just like there's just so many like bits to it like literally on stage because um including um 
the main thing was this like huge pool of water, which where it started off completely empty, but had this tap. And then at some point quite late on, um, they turned the tap and then, and then it started building up and building up. And then um, it became kind of used, particularly at the very end where they had this big, like this really amazing fight scene. And then the water was like going everywhere. But there was also like everything else, there was this very kind of, um, it was almost like looking out at like some huge kind of painting. And there was all these different components of it, of all these kind of, I don't know, a bit like some like huge Renaissance painting or something where you've got like all these kind of, um, a group of people sat across one bit and then there's these other people in the foreground who are like dancing and then there's these other, and just like, you don't even like don't know where to look. And then it was funny because when I went to see King Lear recently, it was just like quite empty and when I first night and I was like oh this is a bit weird because like Yale Farber's not like a kind of minimalist but when I sat down I remember thinking like oh it's not not a lot on stage like what's going on here but I think there's um there's something that's so interesting about like both of those ways of working and how you sort of you start off with something that feels like it's very empty, but then over time it kind of all the all these other components sort of build up anyway. Or with kind of Macbeth, where when you know, like on first glance, it seems like there's so much very present. It was funny because I sort of overall felt like King Lear was probably actually, ironically, the much more like complex one. Mm-hmm. And you say that the production sort of as a whole, it hangs on on the line "nothing will come of nothing." Mm. That that's p- part of the what looks at the beginning like minimalism in a way. Is it? There's a kind of loss at the centre. Yeah, definitely. I think it's this kind of feeling of. Um, I think what I what I felt was that when I was watching, I was thinking like, oh, it feels like something's missing, and I kind of at first mm. I actually felt that in quite a literal way that I was like, oh yeah, something's missing. What's you know. And then I started, then it kind of gradually dawned on me and I was like, no, something really is missing. But like in a kind of profound, deliberate way that there's Mm. this feeling all the time of absence and loss. And then that was what really took me back to the Hamlet, because the Hamlet felt very much like it was, it felt like such a kind of personal interpretation of grief. It felt like instead of it being this like huge, big Shakespeare where you've got this kind of. I don't know, just this, sometimes it feels almost like impenetrable as a, as just like a thing, like an entity, like this hugeness of Hamlet. It kind of felt just so human, like it felt like, oh, here's this kind of student whose dad's died and they don't know what to do. And I think that was sort of also something that probably played a lot into King Lear. There was just this feeling of like, oh, there's just this really sad family. and Sort of negative space kind of at the middle of it. Yes, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Exactly that. Like you're all, it's almost felt like how I think often grief feels that you're like going around all the time feeling, feeling like the presence of an absence. Mm. Um, Mm. Or like you've forgotten something or, but you don't know what it is. That that kind of idea. Yeah. 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 Rosemary, before we let you go, I have to ask you, because he's just one of my favourites. You mentioned him in your piece. Clark Peters is the fool in this year, and he is such a brilliant and such a versatile actor. He's also 71. Mm. So he's a senior fool, we might say. I mean, I, I, you would know far better from me whether there's a sort of theatrical heritage 
of older fools, but but you say his performance is is fantastic. Yeah, superb. I mean, I agree with you. Like, I think he's a wonderful actor anyway. And actually, when I first saw the casting, that was one of my main, like, uh, you know, like sources of excitement. I think one of the things they do so beautifully with how he performs it is um, it's just like the furthest possible away from that kind of, I don't know, like really cringe kind of Shakespeare comedy moments. That a sort of clown so yeah, not, not quite like the, that. Yeah, sort of someone bopping someone on the head with a stick yeah, and yeah. a bladder and yeah, capering yeah. about, that kind of thing. Because yeah. I feel like that's always something that sometimes really jars in a lot of the, of the um, like particularly like the tragedies. You have those like horrible moments where it's suddenly like, oh, and here's the comedy intermission. And it just like, ugh. but um, <laughs> no, they play, he plays it so beautifully. Like it's probably actually one of the kind of most profound and saddest pieces in the play which I think is quite is a huge achievement because that kind of really turns around what I think often how that character's performed and there's this kind of um lovely relationship that's between him and Leah of it feeling like the way in which he's allowed to I mean be very blunt and very truthful but also that he's actually really listened to Maybe because he's not actually playing it as the kind of, um, yeah, like knockabout character. Mm, mm. Well, so that's given us lots of food for thought. And as we say, it's on at the Almeida. So if there's if anyone can can get there, go along. And this production, you you don't get covered in water like you did no. in in the last one. <laughs> I feel like I may have to make my return to the Almeida after a traumatic experience seeing Medea. Oh, oh, it was very, very, very good. Right, but tough. I reeled as I came out. Yes. Yeah, well, King Leo is not one to send you out dancing in the aisles, but but still... um... No, it's not a farce, is it? Let's, let's... No, never mind. I shall go up my loins. (laughs) But thank you so much, Rosemary, for um, talking to us about that today. No problem. It's been a pleasure. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Damon Galgut and Rosemary War. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.